I'll be reading from Romans chapter 6, verses 14 to 23. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as, as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It was um, back, I think, in... um in 1986, when I began this prison ministry, and in this ministry, we'd go into a prison near Baltimore, it was a psychiatric prison, and uh, give a Bible study, and it's there I met a man uh, that was uh, convicted guilty of a double murder, and, um, but a very gentle man, and as I got to know him, he one time gave a testimony uh, that I found really quite uh, riveting. He said that I am more free in prison than I was out of prison. And what he meant by that is he began to tease it out is that he had come to faith, he became a Christian, he was converted in prison. And he found that the freedom, both from the forgiveness of sins, but also uh, the release from being controlled by his own passions and desires, that life on the outside Uh, was actually more imprisoning, more enslaving for him than when he was in the prison and had found the gospel. That's really what this chapter 6 of Romans is about. It's, you know, as you learned last week, in the first half of this chapter, uh, we learned that, that through faith, we are united with Christ in his death and his resurrection. That God unites us to Christ, um, and we are forgiven of our sins. Uh, and we have a, a hope for the future. But here's what six moves toward. There's a power now to overcome sin. That the Christian life is actually different. We actually live differently. You know, because the scriptures teach us that we're dead to sin and alive to God, it's incompatible for the Christian to continue to walk in sin casually. It's not that we're perfect. Not at all. It's just that we're being perfected. We're being changed. We're overcoming sin because of the gospel. Well, the second half of chapter 6 is really no different. Uh, Paul's still encouraging us to turn from a a life of self-word 
uh, sinful behavior and moving to godliness. But he uses this analogy of slavery, which I'll get to later. Uh, but what he's trying to say is that once you have been changed by God, you're no longer a slave to the passions and the desires that drive each one of us, but we actually can now live for God. We can now make choices. We can now have behaviors that are actually God-honoring and pleasing for us as well. Now, the passage is set up in the same way as last week. You have a question in verse 15. So Paul asks a question. It's a rhetorical question. He's setting up himself so that he can provide an argument. In 15, there's a question. In 16, there's an answer. And then in 17, all the way through 23, you have the reasons for why he says what he says. So 15, there's a question. 16, there's an answer. And then 17 to 23, he gives three reasons. So look at the question with me first in 15. And let me just remind you before I read it, uh, that Paul asked a question in chapter 6, verse 1. It's very similar. Paul was dealing with, with people. Maybe they were critics, uh, but they were saying, hey, if this gospel you know, that we've been spending these five chapters on, if this gospel is so full of grace, then what does it matter if I sin? What's the big deal? In other words, the question is, if God delights to justify and to forgive the ungodly, then why worry about being godly? What's the point? It's an abuse of grace. So look at, at 14 and 15. In 14 it says, sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but you're under grace. So here's the issue. He says, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? Here's what people were saying. Well, listen, if God takes the law away, you know, this law that we're trying to find acceptance with God through, if God takes that away, then it doesn't matter how we live. I, I mean, seriously, if, if the law is what will judge us as to whether we get into heaven or not, and the law is taken away, then I can live any way I want. I mean, can you imagine how it would play out? So you take all the speed limit signs down on 540. There's now no law on 540. Of course, it doesn't matter for half the people driving it, but if for the other half, if you take down those speed limit signs, they're going to drive the way they want to drive, and that's what they're thinking. If there is no law, if we don't have to fear a law, then we can live any way we want. That's what Paul's taking issue with. That's the question. Does it really matter if I sin? Now, this question bleeds into every generation. Every generation asks the same question. Does it really matter how I live if God saves me by his grace? Does it really matter? I mean, I've heard it said this way. I know I shouldn't be doing this. I know it's a sin, but, but you know what? God's going to forgive me, and it's going to be okay because he's a loving God. And so they go and do what they want. Or you know what? It's okay if I live with my boyfriend. It's no big deal. Listen, I prayed early on. I believe in God. He'll forgive me. He's a loving God. We, we say it. Maybe I don't know how you say it. Perhaps you've said it before. Does it really matter? I'm saved by grace, not by works. So therefore, my works don't really matter. This is cheap grace. This is a presumption upon God. For me to say, I'm going to go ahead and sin, and while I'm planning my sin, I'm going to plan the repentance that I give to God after I sin, that doesn't work. Paul says, that doesn't work at all. That's the question, though. If we're saved by grace, can we live the way we want? Well, look at 16 because it gives us an answer. 
He says, no, may it never be. I mean, are you crazy? You could put it in the vernacular. Or have you gone loopy? Do you really think that grace allows you to live any way you want? And so look what he says in 16. He says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? So what Paul's saying, don't you know? You know, when you ask somebody that, you're assuming they know. He says, don't you know this already? They had forgotten that whatever you give yourself to, you become a slave of. See, Paul's answering with a principle. He's saying this. They're asking the question, can't we continue to sin? And he's saying, don't you realize that if you just keep giving yourself to sin, you'll be a slave to sin? This is why he uses the analogy of slavery. Uh, they all would have known what it meant to be a slave. At this point in the Roman Empire, it is estimated by many scholars that as many as a third of the empire were in some form of servitude or slavery. And the church would have had a higher percentage. In fact, some people would often sell themselves into slavery because they were under such uh, poverty-type conditions. They were destitute. They couldn't provide. And they would sell themselves into slavery. And what Paul's saying is, when you give yourself over, you're a slave of whatever you give yourself to. Now, remember, slavery back then was not a nine-to-five, you get the weekends off. Uh, slavery was 24-7. Paul's saying simply this, should we continue to sin? He goes, if you do, you're, you're re-entering slavery, as it, as it were. And he also doesn't tell us you get many options. Do you notice, he says, there's really only two. He said, you can either be a slave to sin or a slave to obedience. There is no compromise here. I, I want you to see, now I know you're thinking, well, you know, sometimes I sin and sometimes I don't. I'm talking about on the long term, on the ultimate. He says, there's only two paths. One ultimately is you're enslaved to yourself, leading to sin, or you're enslaved to God. It's, it's one or the other. You're going to serve one of them, is what he's saying. There's no middle ground. There's no com compromise. Now, uh, many of you, some of you are my age, and so you may have heard of a singer named Bob Dylan. Now, Bob Dylan had a word on this. Bob Dylan was a, a folk singer back in the 60s. He's got to be 300 years old by now, but that is the 20th century as I'm talking about. He was a big singer in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. Now, he's not dead. Actually, he'll be at Deepak in uh, November 3rd, and he'll probably pack it out with people that have less hair than I have. But, but here's what he's saying. There was some conversion that he went through. Now, I don't know how to interpret these celebrities that have conversions. He's a rock and roll guy and everything, but, but he was converted and he wrote this song. It's called Slow Train Coming. And uh, he says this. <clears throat> he says, you've got to worship somebody, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. He got it. We all serve somebody. We all, it's either ourselves or it's God. In fact, it's interesting, John Lennon, the lead singer of the Beatles, hated this song. And he wrote a song. He said, you've got to serve yourself. He got it too. He understands he was serving himself. Did you realize that you are a slave? That you're a servant to something? I, I know this kind of rankles us because we think we're free. But, but I want to assure you that each one of you in here, we are controlled. We are enslaved to something. 
I mean, even the most unmotivated, slothful, lazy, he is dedicated and committed to making sure that his highest good is met. Whatever his bottom line is, it may be pleasure leading to pornography. It may be material comfort leading to pursuit of financial security. It, it, it may be other forms of pleasure or comfort. We want to be satisfied in this life. In fact, David Pallison is a Christian psychologist, and he says that usually our, our, our gods, the things that we serve, are, are around four types. He said one could be just power. We love power. We want to be in positions of authority. We want to be in positions of recognition. We want to be well thought of. For others, it's maybe control. They want to run things the way they want to see them run. They want to have their ways met. They, whatever they want is what they think everybody should want. And there's other people that pursue comfort. Maybe sexual comfort. It may be financial comfort. It may be comfort with food. But that becomes what drives me, what I think about, what I'm worried about losing. It may be comfort. It may be power. It may be control. It can be a number of things. And by the way, you don't have to be a Christian to think about this. Every one of us, even the non-Christian, is driven by something. You're serving something. You, you surrender yourself to some goal that you want. Like the author wrote it this way, he says, you may say that you're not religious. He says, everybody's religious. What's your religion, you ask? Well, your religion is what you rely upon. Your religion is what you live for. It's what you hope for. Your God is that to which you give yourself. You give your time, your attention, your greatest thought, your money. You live for it. It is the thing that keeps you going. It is that which you turn to when life gets so hard. Everyone has a religion. The question is, what is your religion? So this is, this is for all of us. Now, how do you identify these kind of what we call functional gods? They function as a god because you serve them. You, know, you can ask yourself the question, what do I really get angry over? I'm not talking about just getting a little frustrated. I'm talking about you really snap get angry. What is that that you want that you're getting angry? Or perhaps it's something you fear losing. You know, a lot of us fear losing things, but I'm talking about a paralyzing fear. I'm talking about you're wondering about life following losing this. That would identify you know, kind of a functional God in your life. Or maybe it's sadness, that you have a deep sadness that, that some news has come to you and it's, it's left you desperately sad. Now, again, we all have that. You get a report from the doctor, you get sadness. I get that, but I'm talking about a type of sadness where you don't know that you want to keep on living afterwards. These are the things that begin to identify that which you love. Rebecca Pippert wrote these words. She wrote a book called Out of the Salt Shaker. She says, whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We don't control ourselves. We're controlled by the Lord of our lives. And remember, they can be good things. They can be good things. I mean, no less than a theologian, John Calvin of the 16th century. He simply says these words. He says, evil is not desiring a bad thing. It may be elevating a good thing to a God thing. That's all it is. So that's all Paul's saying is, should I continue in sin? He's saying, no, if you do, you will submit, you will surrender yourself to a life of self-centered passions. I wonder if you know what you most love right now. 
What is it that you love most? What, what do you fear losing most? What has gripped you right now? Because that's probably what you're serving. Well, Paul doesn't think that the Roman Christians, uh, he thinks better of them. He has spoken to them for five chapters that they have been forgiven, they've been justified, they've been changed. And so he thinks better of them, and he's going to tell them how they can not walk as a slave to sin. He's going to explain to them what it means that if you serve sin, you're going to die. If you serve God, it's going to lead to a life of righteousness. And he gives them three things. So verses 17 to 23, what he does is he kind of walks down memory lane. He says, you once were, but now you are. It's like a before and after picture. You see those things. You once were this way, but now you're this way. He's saying that you're different now. And so you don't have to just give way to whatever passion you have in life, whether it's cars or women or money or success. You don't have to give way anymore because you're different. And, and so he tells three things he wants them to remember. The first thing he says is, remember that you've been set free. He's reminding them that they've changed. Look with me in 17. In 17, he says these words, thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin, you become obedient from the heart. And this is what they once were. They once were slaves to sin. In other words, that, that word has the indication of it was their nature. It was just the way they were. They were slaves to sin. Now, we talked about the nature of Adam in chapter 5, how we all are children of Adam. We all want to do what Adam did. Adam wanted to go his own way. We want to go our own way. You know the story in Genesis chapter 3. He rebels against God, and he and Eve, of course, are thrown out of God's presence. They're in the wilderness. They're enslaved to themselves, and all the descendants picked up the same trait. You know, G.K. Chesterton was a British journalist, essayist, and he, he said that the doctrine of original sin is the only doctrine that has empirical proof. We love to say no. We love to go our own way. I mean, you see it in children. You see it when your kids are young. Within the first five words of what they learn, no is one of them. You know, I remember they'd say no. I'm like, I'm feeding you. You're living in my house. I'm clothing you. I'm insuring you. And they have no problem saying no. And they'll give you a throwdown in the grocery store. They don't, you don't have to teach them that. You don't have to teach them. It's fundamental to who we are. That's why Paul says we are by nature children of wrath. The other day, we were, Carol and I were babysitting our granddaughter, Emma, because uh, Anna Caroline was in the hospital. And uh, so she can say no. She said no to me a few times. So we put her down, and um, we go downstairs, and she's fussing. And so I'm thinking that she threw her stuffed animal out of the crib or something. So I go back up there to comfort her. And so I open the door and I say, Emma? And she looks at me and she says, no. And I'm thinking, no? And, and she goes, Mimi, which is my wife. That's her name, Mimi. I want Mimi. I was like, well, you're a bad day. You got me. <laughs> and I, I, so I went over and I went to pick her up and she says, Mimi. And I said, no, it's Papa. And uh, so she goes, crib. She wanted me to put her back in the crib. <laughs> I said, that's fine. Put you back in the crib. And then she goes in this just boom on the thing. And I'm thinking, I'm looking at her, and she's laying down. And then she says, shut the door. 
I'm looking at her going, you're in my house right now. I just want to let you know that. It's like, shut the, don't let the door hit you on the way out. She's just two and a little. You, you, don't, you don't have to bake that into people. It's there. What, what Paul's saying is you don't have to continue to sin because you've been changed. Look in 17, he says, Thanks be to God. You who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching. What he's saying is you've been converted. God has taken out this heart of stone and rebellion and is put in a heart of flesh. That the coming to Christ by faith, believing in his work for you, he changes us. And, and you know he changes us because you see what it says? We become obedient from the heart. That's a unique expression in Greek. It, it, it's, it's a willing change. We're glad to follow God. It's from the heart. We want to be different. God has made us such. And, and, and notice, notice that it's not just a mental assent to some gospel. They were obedient to the teaching. There is a moral dimension to conversion. It's not simply, I didn't believe in Jesus, now I believe. There's, I believe in Jesus, and life changes. There's a, there's a moral change that takes place. That's why we don't continue in sin. And, and by the way, this is God. He deserves the credit. Do you notice this? But thanks be to God. And do you notice the passive form when it says, you have become obedient? This is a work of God. That's why you see the same kind of language in verse 18 where he says you've been set free from being a slave to sin. God has done this for us. And so you don't want to continue to walk in it. Shall we continue to sin is the question? No, of course not. You've been changed. It's like an abused woman going back to an abusing husband. We'd say, no, 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 you've changed. You've gotten out of that. Don't get back into it. So, so when he asks the question, are we to continue to sin because there's no law that will judge us at the end of life? He says, no, 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 no. There will not, you will not be judged by a law, but you don't want to continue to walk in it because you're different. I made you different. I gave you a new nature. And this is why the Christian faith is never about rules. It's about having an affection for God who would send a son to die for us. I mean, ultimately, Christianity, we love him. We love him because he's provided one for us that has changed us, and we can be different. See, a leopard cannot change its spots, but God can, and he did in us. So the pathway to holiness is actually recognizing you're different now. You're new. That is for the Christian you are. So the, so the first rule is remember that you've been set free. But then the second encouragement Paul gives is remember the nature of sin. Remember the danger of sin. Now look in verse 19, because I... It's an interesting thing. Paul seems to almost be making an apology for using this illustration of slavery. I think he probably is because slavery, as an analogy, doesn't fit super well with the Christian life. It kind of does in the sense that, you know, we are to be ultimately, you know, all of our allegiance is to God and a slave has an allegiance to his master. But I think he's kind of apologizing, but he moves on from that. And, and what he says, look with me in 19. Because he gives us a warning here. He says, just for just as, again, past tense, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. Paul's saying, should you continue to sin? Don't do it. Why? Because sin 
And pursuing sin works in a downward spiral. It's kind of like cancer. You know what cancer does? Cancer reproduces itself and it consumes its host. And that's ultimately what sin does. It's not static. It's not idle. You think you have your sin in a corner, whatever your pet sin is, you have it in a corner. It's not in the corner. I, I mean, sin. John Owen was a theologian of the 17th century in England. He wrote these words. He said, sin always aims at the utmost. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression if it could. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism. It's never satisfied. Now, listen, many of you have, or perhaps you've struggled in the past. You've seen alcoholism in your family or some sort of addiction. We've seen it in our family. We've seen it with alcohol. We've seen it with drugs. We've seen it with finances. And we've just seen families ruined, marriages ended, estranged children. Why? That person would have said to you, I can handle it. I can handle it. No, 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 I got this under control. I got this under control. And, and it takes them over. That's what he's warning you. Don't continue in sin. This is a monster that you think you can manage. It's unmanageable, if left to its own devices. And that's why he says that the second part of chapter, or the second part of verse 19, he says, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to greater lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. You know, with the intensity that you may have pursued sin, pursue God. You know, with the ingenuity and the creativity to do what you want to do, even though it was contrary to what you know you should do, then use that same strength and power to pursue God. Carol and I always find people that we may be sharing the gospel with or maybe in our lives, and we always think, you know, they're just darker than dark, and we're thinking, if God spins them, and if they pursue God with the way they've pursued their own personal pleasure, they will be dynamite for the kingdom. They would be wonderful. And that's what he's saying here is don't miss the danger of sin. Be wary of it. You're not controlled by it. The Christian isn't controlled by sin, but it is a formidable force to tempt you and distract you and mislead you. That's why James says that desire gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it brings death. We see that all the time. You know, so I, I did a little bit of research on this, and I want to emphasize the word little, because uh, I didn't spend a lot of time. But it got my mind thinking about, you know, you always read periodically about, in the paper, about the guy that had a little cougar cub, and it was real cute in the house, and played with kids and everything. And then about five or six years later, the, the guy's dead. because of the So I did some research on that. How many people have been eaten or killed by their pets? So I came across this major in the South African army, and uh, he adopted a hippopotamus. This is incredible. And his name was Humphrey. Now, now, the reason this is so funny is because we tend to look at sin, and we say, you know what, I can manage this. You know, it's not that big a deal. I have control over this. So he adopts Humphrey the hippo, and, and he could never understand. This is what he said. This, is, this shows you where the guy's head was with the hippo. He said, Humphrey's like a son to me. He's just like a human. He says, uh, there's a relationship between me and Humphrey, and that's what some people don't understand. I'm thinking, he's a hippo. He's not a son to you, but this is what happens with the nature of sin. You make it your friend. It's not your friend. That's a 1.2 ton hippo that killed this major in the South African army. It was a 1.2 ton hippo. Do you realize 
that hippos kill more people than lions, tigers, I'm not going to do the rest of it, elephants, buffaloes, leopards, all combined. And he thinks it's a son to him. Why? Well, he just kind of redefines his hippo into being a son, and it kills him. That's what sin does. What sins are in your life right now that you've managed, that you just think you have a control of? That you, you need to confess these. You need to expose these. Confess these to a spouse or share them with a friend. You know, Augustine was a church father back in the 4th century. He says that any sin, I forgot what he said. It was a long time ago when he said it. Right. He that becomes a protector of his sin is imprisoned by his sin. Don't protect this. Be wary of the nature. Be confessional. Be repentant. If there's something right now that is pressing you, you need to expose it. The question is, can we sin now that we're not under law but under grace? He says, may it never be. You don't know what you're playing with. You think you have a handle on it? It'll turn and kill you. Okay, the third warning he gives, the third warning is that he says, remember the payout. He says, he says if you want to continue in sin, remember the payout. Now, look at the chilling nature of the question in verse 21. In verse 21, he says, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? Let me read that again. What fruit? What benefit are you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? He's saying this. Look back at your life and the things that you profited from, the joys that you had in your sin, are they producing anything now but shame? In other words, the shame that you feel now. You didn't feel the shame then. It was probably funny. Everybody else was doing it. You just walked along right with it. But now you have this shame associated with it. He's saying... The question is, should we continue to sin? He goes, think about that. That we're now in shame for the things that we once thought were funny or pleasurable or exciting. But it's more than shameful. He says it leads to death. Leads to death. And you notice in verse 23, it says, for the wages of sin is death. I, I want to help you explain that. What he means by that, it's not a physical death, I don't think, because it's, it's, it's held in contrast to eternal life. So if if eternal life is on one side, then it has to be eternal death. Actually, the Bible calls eternal death a second death. That means a death, eternal separation from God. But what I want you to see is it doesn't just come at the end. It isn't something, I'm going to live my life right now and I'll deal with it later. No, 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 death comes to you along the way. That word wages, that, that Greek word that's used, it was used for the payment that Roman soldiers got. Now, when a Roman soldier went into battle, his pay was whatever he plundered from the city that the army would sack. So they would plunder and they would steal. That was their pay. But what the Roman government did was they would give the Roman soldier fish and salt to preserve them along the way. That's what that word is. It's the stuff that they were getting daily. And what he's saying here is the wages of sin is death. Death kills you every day. It doesn't just come at the end. It slowly draws you away from God. It slowly makes God feel more distant to you. It slowly leaves you kind of backing away from your friends and your church. And you've seen this before. When people get into it, they start developing other hobbies. They start finding things to do on Sunday morning. They can't make time for you. 
And the Bible becomes kind of boring and plain. Why do I need to read that? Prayer becomes just, that's what happens. It's like arsenic, just one drop a day in time. It'll add up and it'll kill you. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, remember the payout. Now, the other side is this. He says, but now that you have been set free and become slaves to God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and and eternal life. He's saying that when you turn away from sin, he says, when you don't give yourself to sin, then you have a life that is growing in terms of holiness, but not just holiness. And you think of holiness and you think of sterility. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about when I speak about holiness is I feel good that I haven't sinned, and I feel like my heart is cleansed. I feel like God is close. I don't feel like I'm distant. I don't feel like i got to apologize for something. I feel like I'm living in a manner that's pleasing to God, and I'm happy about it. And, and that happens over and over, and it leads you to God. And, and, it, and you long for heaven. You don't, you don't get scared of it, but you begin to long for it. What he's saying here is, remember the payout. You know, the warning is this. You know, when you're tempted to give way to whatever your lusts are pressing you to do, ask yourself, will I be happy in five years? Will I I be glad that I did that? Will I be happy about it? You know, the outbursts of anger that you have, or, or, or the bitterness that you're nursing right now, maybe, or the lust that you're cultivating, will I be happy in five years if those things play out? You know, the, the situation of a person maybe explodes on another person. They've finally had enough of their behavior, and you explode, and you, you let them have it, and you know what? You think you're doing them a favor. But then the relationship three years later is still a little bit off-center. And you begin to wonder, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Maybe you're a little embarrassed or shameful. Maybe I shouldn't have been so hard. Or the lustful thought gives way to engagement and deeper relationships with other people, or pornography, and it moves into adultery. And then you wish, the shame's there. I've never met an adulterer that was happy that he pursued his sin. Never met one, not one. It's a chilling question. Will you be happy in five years? So here's the question. Should I continue in sin because the law's passed and now we're under grace? You know, there's a similar question given to Adam when Satan said, did God really say that? You know, when you hear in your ear kind of whispered, you know, you know what, God's going to forgive you. Go ahead. No, you got this under control. Don't worry about it. Uh, God's good. He's loving. He'll forgive you. Remember who you are. You have been made new. You've been set free. You've been changed. Remember that you've been set free. Remember the danger of sin. Remember the payout. So what Paul's arguing for in this whole chapter 6 is, if you've been born again, then walk as you are. Become what you are, as many theologians say. Repent. Confess. If you're loaded up with guilt right now, ask God for forgiveness. You would be amazed. He's actually more merciful than you are sinful. And you simply need to repent and ask him for grace and place your faith in Christ as one who has come without ever sinning to save and to bring you to himself. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I'd ask you who your gods are. Have they served you well? And will they keep serving you well? I'd ask you to consider these things about Christ, the freedom that he comes to bring, the joy that he comes to offer. That's what we're going to hear about 
in these seven testimonies, you're going to hear these videos of, of seven uh, men and women who uh, have found their lives to be empty apart from Christ, and they are going to give you a testimony. They are just testifying to what God has done in their life. They are sharing with you how they've been changed by God and, and that they want to now make this public with baptism. You know, baptism, we don't do these things in the privacy of our homes uh, because they're public events. When you are delivered from darkness to light, you're delivered into a community. It's a public event uh, because we're, we are collected together in the church. They are going to make promises to you. They are going to say things like, I want to live and follow Christ. That's what we call a baptismal vow. They are vowing to follow Christ, but they need you to help them. And by the way, you need them. We need each other. That's why you always see baptism and membership in the local church together. Oh, they're baptized into Jesus Christ, but the visible expression of Christ now on this earth is you and me. And so they're going to be baptized, and you will get to walk through life with them. So sit back and enjoy. There's about 15 minutes, seven testimonies, and they're going to express to you what God has done for them. I pray that you would enjoy greatly God's great work. Thank you.